We're continuing our look at, uh, at the backstory of Christmas this morning and starting in Matthew's uh, gospel this morning at uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. Matthew's gospel, chapter 2. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is this newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star as it arose, and we've come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed by their question, as was all of Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law. Where did the prophets say the Messiah would be born, he asked them. In Bethlehem, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. O Bethlehem of Judah, you are not just a lowly village in Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for all my people, Israel. Then Herod sent a private message to the wise men asking them to come see him. At this meeting, he learned the exact time when the, first, when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, Come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. Once again, the star appeared to them, guiding them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house where the child and his mother Mary were, and they fell down before him and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But when it was time for them to leave, they went home another way, because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. May the Lord open his word to our hearts. So uh, I tell you stories sometimes about other churches that I pastored. I hope that doesn't make you jealous. I'm, uh, I'm only new to you, right? I have been previously used. But... Uh, but when I look back at the very first church I, I, I pastored, uh, one of the memories that always comes back is there was this one lady who hated me. And when I say she hated me, she probably would say, well, I don't think it's right to hate, and I don't hate you, but she did. Like, you can call it something else, but if you've ever had someone really, really hate you, you know it, Right? You feel it. You see it. You sense it. And sometimes you could be mistaken on other people's feelings. I don't think I was mistaken about this lady. She, was, she hated me. She's not the only one who's ever hated me. I know that's a shocker. But, uh, but she was really good at it. Like, she had a skill to hate me that, that few possess. And I don't know if it was conviction from my preaching or if she just figured out and, and, and heard somewhere that I used to be a telemarketer. But either way, she couldn't stand me. Now the truth is uh, that as I found out a little more about her, I found out she hated the pastor before me, and she hated the pastor before that. So I almost hate to admit that, because then I don't feel special, right? She hated every pastor, it seemed, and so there was nothing specific about me that really got her going. She just, I don't know, I, I, I told that in the first service. Somebody caught me in the foyer, and they said, why did she come to church then? But I'm like, did she just enjoy hating people? That's what, 
that's what he wondered. Um, and I don't know. And I can joke about that one because it was just a lady in my first church. It was a little uncomfortable at the time. There have been other people who hated me. There are other people who have rejected me over the years that uh, have not been so comfortable and easy to talk about. And for all of you, if you've lived very long, and unless you're like the sweetest person on the planet, there's someone at some point that you felt like they should have understood, that they should have supported you, that they should have been on your side and rooting for you, and yet you feel the rejection at some point. You feel like they just really weren't in your corner. And, uh, and there are times when we're rejected. And it's an ugly reality. It's something we all deal with and face. There are always people, and sometimes you rack your brain, what did I do? What did I say? Is there anything I, you know, it, about me that I should change? But sometimes people reject us. And maybe, maybe sometimes there is a reason for it, but sometimes there isn't. And so we look back on our history, and whether it's girlfriends or family members or, or, or people in our past that we worked with, there's people you hoped knew you. There's people you hoped would have appreciated you, that could have uh, supported you and made it easier on you. And yet, they let you down, and they, uh, they rejected you. And why I tell you that is because in John's prologue that we started this series in, uh, John says, you know, the one who is the true light is coming into the world. Uh, the one who is the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He came to the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Like, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. They didn't know who they were looking at. I don't know if you've ever, like, kind of shot off your mouth about something and then found out the person you were talking to was like a cousin to who you were talking about or something like that. But it's like God had come as Jesus, and he was standing right in front of them, like he walked around in their world, and yet they were oblivious to the fact that it was him. And if, as if it wasn't bad enough that they didn't recognize him, it says he came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Like, not just that they didn't realize he was the Messiah, not just that they didn't understand that he was the God who created the entire universe and was, was over everything. It's not just that they didn't get it. It's that what they did see in him, they didn't like. So they pushed him away. They rejected him. They, they treated him out of hand. And so John's prologue, uh, says that they didn't accept him. Though they, he created the world, they didn't recognize him and they rejected him. And even in his own land, it says, like even among his own people. And for you and I, we look at the scriptures and we understand the story of Abraham. Abraham was told, I, I'm going to bless you and uh, you're going to be my guy and your family, your descendants, I'll be their God and they will be my people. Like, like I'm going to teach them who I am and how I work and, and how the world's all put together and, and what it means to be my people, what it means to have a good relationship with God, how he feels about them and how they should respond to him. And he starts that with Israel and he says, I'm going to bless all nations, but I'm starting here first. Like they'll be the ones that I'll teach about me. And they'll spread the word and people hopefully will understand who God is and what he's about. 
And he says, this is the group of people that Jesus came to, and they, of all the people on the earth, should have got it. They had the stories. They had the scriptures. They had been visited by the prophets. They knew the teachings of the Old Testament. They knew this God that they claimed to worship. And yet, when God walks in the door, they don't even get it. When God is moving around in their neighborhood, they want nothing to do with this guy. They should have known him. They should have understood who he really is. They should have accepted him. But they didn't. And, and, and God seems to have taken the rejection really personally. Like John is unpacking the story of Jesus and he's about to tell them all the things Jesus did and said and the miracles and the teachings and all that Jesus was. And in the very beginning of the story, he, he you know, starts with that grand landscape of Jesus was there at the beginning. Everything was created through him and by him and for him. And by the way, one of the big plot things that you need to understand in the big scope of the story is that, that he was rejected by the people who, who most should have understood him, who most should have seen who he was, who most should have welcomed what he brought to his people. They should have welcomed who he was, but they wanted nothing to do with it. So even as John unfolds, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was the God, even in that brief account at the beginning of the story, he says there was a rejection of this guy. And the people who best should have gotten it didn't. But that's not the whole story. And so as we bring that into the context of our our passage this morning in our story, we see that there were some who actually did get him. And so there are these wise men. And we, we talk about the wise men. We sing that song, right? We three kings of Orient are, you know, come bearing the gifts. Fun fact for you. They weren't kings. Nothing in the scripture says they were kings. It says that they were wise men. That might have even been a little tongue-in-cheek. The Old Testament, if you read very much of it, it tells us we aren't supposed to be reading our horoscope. We aren't supposed to be looking at astrology in the stars to understand what our future is. We're actually forbidden to do that. But that's what these guys are. They're actually astrologers. They're looking at the stars for signs of what they should do and what happens in life. They're not believers in our God at this point. They're just looking at the stars. And so they're looking for God in the wrong way. They're, uh, they're probably not from the Orient. Scholars believe they're really more from around Persia, and they would have been a couple of months' travel from, from the manger. And so when they are called onto the scene there. But, you know, it's not as catchy to say, we, oh, and three? It doesn't say there were three of them. It just says there were three kinds of gifts. So we don't know if some guys kind of came empty-handed because they didn't have time to shop for anything, or we don't know if three or four of them had myrrh because, oh, you got a myrrh? I got a myrrh too. 
We don't know that. It just says there were three gifts. It doesn't say there were three guys. But it's not as catchy to say we're going to sing about, well, we Persian astrologers of indeterminate number coming from that way. That doesn't, not as catchy, right? So we'll still sing the song. But you need to understand they're starting from further away. And when they catch it, it's almost... Like God is saying, you shouldn't be looking at the stars for your answers. But they're looking up anyway. They're looking at the stars. And he goes, well, let me just take this star and let me just move it over here. And you see that right there? Look at that. That should have your attention. So he takes the thing they're looking at that shouldn't give them answers and he draws their attention using the star away from the star to the baby Jesus. And so he pulls them towards this scene. And when the wise men come, they, they come to, to God's people. They come to Herod, and, and, and you would figure Herod's the king, right? He's the king of, uh, of the Jewish nation. And, and they say to him, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star as it arose. We've come to worship him and, uh, you know, where is he? And you notice right away, they say, where's this king of the Jews? <coughs> and Herod's first response is to go and ask the religious scholars, but what does he ask him? He doesn't say, hey, is there supposed to be a king? He goes, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Like when he's asked about a king that's going to be born, he knows that what they're talking about, the king they're talking about, is the Messiah. And so he goes, where's this Messiah supposed to be born? And he says, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star, they said. We've come to worship him. And so they mention this newborn king. And he's, he says, uh, they told him Bethlehem. And so he says, well, wise men, would you go and find him in Bethlehem? And when you find him, come back and tell me because I want to go worship him too. And they believed him. But we're told that's not his motivation at all. He doesn't want to go worship him. It tells us that he was disturbed by the news that there was this king coming that he knows is the Messiah. His reaction as the king of God's people, the leader of the people who are God's representatives on earth, the people who are supposed to hold this deposit of the scriptures and the truths that they teach about who God is and how we relate to him as human beings. These guys are supposed to know, and he's the king of that people. But when he hears that this person, the Messiah, is going to come, he doesn't go, wow, that's great. He's going to come. He's going to rescue us. Everything's going to be wonderful. That's not his reaction at all. He's actually disturbed by the news that the baby's coming. So when he says he wants to go worship him, that's not his reaction. That's not honestly how he reacts. He's disturbed by their question, as was all of Jerusalem. And so he calls a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he says, where would they be born? Is he supposed to be born? And they tell him Bethlehem. And as if it wasn't uh, disturbing enough, as if it isn't surprising enough that the king of the Jewish people would not welcome 
the, their Messiah, their Savior. His reaction of being disturbed is bad enough, but then when you look at, at the story, it's even more disturbing to think the Jewish religious leaders, the ones he goes to and says, you guys pour over the scriptures. You know the scriptures really well. What do the prophecies say? Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And they know the answer immediately. They read the scriptures. They study this stuff. They are the religious experts. They're the people who know stuff about God. And they hear that the Messiah is about to be born. And Herod's disturbed, and it says all the people in Jerusalem were, were disturbed too. But you notice what the religious leaders do? They hear that the Messiah is about to be born, the person that they've all been waiting for. You know what they do? Nothing. Like, they don't go to, they don't make arrangements to take their two weeks vacation off. They don't go, I need some time because I'm, I'm going to Bethlehem. This I got to see. Like, if God is doing something this big, I got to get in on it. I'm one of the people who really loves God. I teach people about God. I'm one of those guys. I'm an expert on this stuff because I love this stuff. This is really important. I should go see it for myself. That's not what they do. They go right back to doing everything the way that they've always done it. They show up at worship that week and nothing's changed. They read scriptures and they sing songs and they teach people and they preach sermons. And the Messiah's being born. The Savior of the world is coming into that little village of Bethlehem and they have no interest whatsoever. They don't even care. Their answer to this whole situation is just apathy. And so you've got Herod who's disturbed by the news and you wonder why. Like, is it because he's a politician? Is he afraid of losing his power? Is he afraid that Jesus is going to have more influence than he is? And then you've got the religious leaders who, who should care. Like this should be a big deal to them. This should be right up their alley, but no, no interest, apathy. And you think, why? Why would they do that? But see, the thing is that religion can be really comfortable. And there's some nice things that you can gain from religion. There's, there's lots of peace to be had and comfort and, and a, a sense of good feelings and, and everything's nice and warm and fuzzy and, and God loves me and, and isn't this great? And, and we can come and we can have those feelings and, and it can be really nice for us. And, and we can encounter it and say, well, these things I really like about religion, and, and those things I really don't. And, and we can kind of pick and choose the stuff that we're going to kind of let in, and, and we can shape it how we want, and we can come in, and we can sing the songs, and we can enjoy the whole experience. And that can be really great, but a real God standing on your doorstep that might challenge the way you think and the way you live that's a whole other thing. 
And so they're interested in a religion that talks about God. But when God moves into the neighborhood, they're either upset by it or they're totally apathetic to it. Totally means nothing. And so they reject him in that way. They're the people of God and they should have welcomed the Messiah, but they don't. And so the question for us this morning is, what do we do when Christ comes to us? How do we respond when Jesus speaks to us? How do we wrap our minds around the fact that God sometimes is uncomfortable and that God in, in Jesus can challenge the way we think and the way that we act, that, that there are times when we build up our idea and we shape our image of God and we say, well, this is what I think he's like. And he, if he had his way, would be not nudging us and saying, that's not it at all. Like, you're, you're wrong. Sometimes there are ideas we have about him that we are holding on to that really aren't right at all. And a God from a distance, he's a little safer. But God that shows up in Jesus, he can be uncomfortable. And so Herod sensed it. And it disturbed him. And and the people in Jerusalem, they caught on to that. And the religious leaders, they knew that that wasn't something that they wanted in their lives in that way. Sometimes God challenges us. And so Shane Claiborne describes his conversion in these terms in his book, The Irresistible Revolution. He says, I know there are people out there who say my life was such a mess. I was drinking, partying, sleeping around, and then I met Jesus and my whole life came together. God bless those people. But me, I had it together. I used to be cool. And then I met Jesus and he wrecked my life. The more I read the gospel, the more it messed me up, turning everything I believed in, valued, and hoped for upside down. I'm still recovering from my conversion. I know it's hard to imagine, but in high school, I was elected prom king. I was in the in crowd, popular, ready to make lots of money and buy lots of stuff on the upward track to success. I had been planning to go to med school like a lot of folks. I wanted to find a job where I could do as little work as possible for as much money as possible. I figured anesthesiology would work. Just put people to sleep with a little happy gas and let others do the dirty work. Then I could buy lots of stuff I didn't need. Mmm, the American dream. But as I pursued that dream of upward mobility, preparing for college, things just didn't fit together. As I read scriptures about how the last will be first, I started wondering why I was working so hard to be first. And I couldn't help but hope that there was something more to life than pop Christianity. I had no idea what I should do. I thought about leaving everything to follow Jesus like the apostles and hitting the road with nothing but my sandals and a staff. But I wasn't sure where to pick up a staff. 
C.S. Lewis recounts his encounter with Jesus this way. He says, I was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God, eyes darting left and right for some means of escape. I think both those guys would, say, would agree with the religious leaders that it's right to fear that Jesus will turn their lives upside down because he did, and he will. And because he challenges our status quo. And so as we encounter him at Christmas, let's not be fooled by the soft pink baby in the manger because Jesus, the living reality, the one who grew to adulthood, he challenges all kinds of things. And he turns things upside down and people were uncomfortable with him at times. John says, the one who was the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. There were lots who were disturbed by what Jesus taught and how he lived. There were some who were completely apathetic and the masses that thought it didn't matter at all what he was doing on those hillsides. And it didn't matter that a few people <clears throat> who used to be lame and used to be blind and used to be deaf were made whole. That wasn't that big a deal, but some got it. Some caught on and they believed in him and they accepted him and he gave them the right to become children of God. Not everyone rejects him. And so it is in our story this morning that the wise men who are going about it all wrong are led by the Spirit of God and his actions to the place where they can see Jesus. And they stand outside that house where now toddler Jesus and his mother are. They'd followed the star for a while. And finally, they're there, and they see where it's stopping, and they know the house it is. And they're not disturbed like Herod is. They're not apathetic like the religious leaders. They see it. And the beauty of the scripture is that it says, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house where the child and his mother Mary were, and they fell down before him, and they worshipped him. They saw the star, and even in all their confusion of how to go about it, they found their way to Jesus because he made sure they could. And their reaction wasn't to be disturbed by the fact that he will and he does turn our lives upside down sometimes. He challenges us in ways that are uncomfortable for us. He pulls us out of our comfort zone and asks things of us that we think we aren't capable of. You can't encounter him and not be changed. But when they find him, there's joy. <laughs> 
and their hearts are glad like they've never been glad before. And they run into that house and they bow at this toddler's feet and they worship him. And John says, everyone who has that reaction, it changes not just what they experience from then on, but they become children of God. Their whole identity changes. Will Jesus disturb your sleep? Will he change the ideas that you cherish and you're sure you're right on? Yes. But the real Jesus is so much better than any imaginary Jesus we could make up that we could fit the way we like him. And when you encounter him, the only right response is to treat him like the king that he is and to allow him to be Lord and to worship him with your whole being. The wise men got it. And my prayer is that we will walk in eyes wide open knowing that Jesus will challenge us, that he'll make us uncomfortable and he'll ask things that we don't want to do and give us uh, ideas that we aren't really sure about. But as long as it's him and we know him as he is, if you want the real Jesus, he offers himself. And there's joy to be had in that.